This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Okay. Wait, that starts off. Uh, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Box's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined in studio by Sarah Cliff, who has brought the Seattle rain to I have. Us. It's disgusting. I haven't seen the sunlight in like two weeks. It's gross. It sucks. It's, it's especially bad with toddlers who um, like to go outside. And Ezra has left us for New Orleans, which I hear is very sunny. Yeah. So it's just the two of us now. It's just the two of us. It's, it's grim. Conditions are grim, but we are going to... Uh, <laughs> We're going to soldier through. Keep... Keep keep hope alive with this podcast. We're gonna we're gonna reach into into the white paper archives later to talk about something that that I've been thinking about in in light of recent results. We're gonna talk uh, about um, an Obamacare replacement plan, which I know will be a, a radical change of pace uh, for our coverage. Uh, but but I wanted to start out with a kind of like a like a broader view of what we've seen in the news from Donald Trump as he's now rolled out. A lot of cabinet appointments. We have uh, Ben Carson at HUD. We have Betsy DeVos at uh, Education. We have Wilbur Ross at Commerce. Uh, we have um, Nikki Haley uh, as UN ambassador, which is going to be maintaining its its cabinet rank. Um, uh, we have um, Elaine Chow. Elaine Chow at Transportation. Tom Price for Health and Human Services. And, uh, and Treasury. Most recently, Steve Mnuchin. I am not. My sources disagree a little bit on how you pronounce his name. Um, but if the, you know, please tell us. The highest ranking current Treasury Department official who I've discussed this with says it's Mnuchin. What's the other option? So I'm going with that. Uh, I've heard Nukin, Mnuchin. There's there's a question about how you pronounce the MN, and there's a question about whether the CH is a CH or a K. Well, right. we'll have to wait for an announcement where we can actually hear the uh, name. I'm, Anyways, I'm, there's there's a lot of cabinet. I right saw now. him on CNBC this morning, but it was like sound off subti- <laughs> uh, subtitles. I would I should have I should have tried to tried to get the audio. But we have um, a cabinet shaping up right now. A cabinet is shaping up, and one thing that's interesting about it is that it's not that interesting. Yeah. Um, it's when we had the very first sort of Trump announcements, right? It was like, okay, we're gonna have Rents Priebus as as chief of staff. So like, okay, that's like a bridge to the party. Then we're gonna have Steve Bannon, who's like this crazy Breitbart editor as a senior counselor. We're gonna have Michael Flynn, who it seems like everyone in the government hates uh, as national security advisor. And it was shaping up to be a little bit of a like, whoa, Trump administration, which would be a little expected because Trump's whole campaign <laughs> has been like kind of whoa. Um, <laughs> But as we've moved into the cabinet officials, oh, of course, Jeff Sessions, who yes. Jeff Sessions was sort of the bridge between these eras uh, because Jeff Sessions is a real outlier in the Republican Party on the issues the Justice Department oversees. He is a much more strident anti-immigration person, has a, a very staunch record of skepticism of civil rights law, uh, uh, th- things like that. But he's also a sitting United States senator. He's right. not like – Who's this guy, right? Like he's a, and from sessions on, we keep seeing people who, I I would say Trump is a little less focused on the idea that he wants cabinet secretaries who have experience in the federal bureaucracy or managing comparable state agencies than we've seen from from most presidents. Like Betsy DeVos at, at Education seems 
typical of this, this to me, that the last few um, – Education secretaries. Uh, the the current one, uh, Arne Duncan, his predecessor, uh, both of the choices under George W. Bush were people who had run public school systems. And so now they were going to be education secretary. Betsy DeVos is not like that. She is a um, heiress and donor to conservative political causes, primarily focused on education policy. Um, so she's not like a veteran administrator, but she's a Paid up member of the Republican Party. She was a major soft money donor in the soft money days. She's into super PACs. She does education policy. She has uh, slightly extreme conservative views on K-12 education, but no recognizable ones. I mean, not, nothing – vouchers, charter schools, um, nothing you haven't heard of before. And on down the line, they are basically like that. They are seem like pretty normal conservative Republicans. Right. Like it feels like it's going more in the Reince Priebus. Like if you think of like Steve, like those were two of the first staff members we learned about, like Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, and that they fit more into the Reince Priebus mode. I will say the one thing that feels a bit different, which you mentioned, is that there is less of an emphasis on like this federal experience. Like when I think of the cabinet that Obama most recently put together, a lot of the prominent names in that are people who had been in the government in one way or another who we recognize. But, you know, as we were just talking a little bit about before we start taping, like you, you had Hillary Clinton, a secretary of state, who is not someone who's like a super experienced diplomat, but but someone who kind of was in democratic politics. And you actually kind of see a similar a similar cabinet shaping up from Trump. I, I think one of the things will be interesting is seeing how this group of people who there are some exceptions, like I'd say Tom Price at HHS is one, Elaine Chow, total insider, married to, married to the Senate majority leader. But a lot of people who are coming into federal bureaucracy for the first time, it'll be I will be interested to watch like how that goes and like what that looks like in terms of how these agencies run, like what changes, what doesn't change when you have a lot of people who haven't really been in these agencies or working in these agencies before. So it feels like there is like a slight drain the swamp tinge to it. But it's not like, I don't know, it's not like these people are, are, are divorced from these issues. And I, and they're not, but I mean, I, on, the, on the one hand, they're not like divorced from the issues. Yeah. They're not, I, I know there was some concern, right, that like Trump would pick a treasury secretary who didn't actually know anything about financial markets and maybe some crazy disaster would, would roll out. Uh, Mnuchin, who is a, a veteran Goldman Sachs guy, then had his own hedge fund. You know, he like knows this terrain. He doesn't know the Treasury Department and will probably, if he's smart, need to pick some good assistant secretaries who maybe worked in the Bush administration, you know, or, or worked in the Federal Reserve System somewhere who can help him like understand what how things actually work in the department. But he's, you know, knowledgeable about financial markets. So, so that's all good. On the other hand, a big part of the promise to drain the swamp, I mean, I think about this particularly in Treasury, right? Like when Trump was in his final battles with Ted Cruz, he explicitly called out the fact that Ted Cruz's wife worked at Goldman Sachs. Uh, when he was running against Hillary Clinton, he explicitly called out the idea that Goldman Sachs, I mean, his words were, totally controls, quote unquote, Hillary Clinton. He put in his final TV ad, like ominous looking photo of Hillary Clinton standing with Lloyd Blankfein. Um, he now has a Goldman Sachs guy running the Treasury Department. Hillary Clinton would not have done that. 
Uh, there would have been intense pressure if she tried to do it. Senate Democrats would not have stood for it. Um, there was no way that Hillary Clinton was going to literally put Goldman Sachs alumni in charge of the government. Um, Trump is doing that via, via both Bannon, who's kind of a mm-hmm. political outsider weirdo, Goldman Sachs veteran, and Mnuchin, who was a Mitt Romney bundler, uh, sort of conservative guy, G- G- Goldman Sachs alumnus. So to the extent – if you imagine this whole Donald Trump thing just hadn't happened, right, and like some Republican had run against Hillary Clinton, I think most people would have said Hillary Clinton is not the most left-wing Democrat in the universe, um, but that by and large the Republican Party as it has been since 1860 or so is like more the party of big business interests than the Democratic Party is, and that's just part of how politics is. Trump seemed to upend that in various ways. And now that he is taking office is really not upending that. Right. Like it's not like the populist cabinet. If you were going like full populism, this is not the cabinet you would expect to see. But I have a question for you, Matt, that might take us a little bit off topic. The Mnookin or however we pronounce it. Yeah. I'll go with your pronunciation. How do you think about what that means for treasury? I know that just came out last night. Yes. I haven't had a ton of time to read up on it. Like walk me through how you think about him running treasury. It's A little puzzling simply because a a lot of sort of finance guys who get interested in politics and government one way or the other um, start expressing views on federal public policy questions, uh, which he has really not done. Um, There was an interesting Bloomberg profile of him. Something I should note is that uh, this, I think, was like a really odd media failing in the campaign. But he was the finance chair of Donald Trump's campaign. And he was always the guy who was like rumored to be the leading candidate for Treasury Secretary. So people knew that, like people who covered the department and people who cover Wall Street were aware of this fact. But that fact never like migrated into like mainstream political coverage of Trump and Hillary Clinton arguing about bank regulation um, in, in an odd way. But back during that time when Mnuchin was being covered like in the sideline, there was this good Bloomberg profile of him where, you know, they mentioned that like one oddity of it is that he didn't have any particular stated opinions about Donald Trump or American politics. Um, But they have a quote for him where he's like, well, when I get a big job in the administration, people are going to stop asking me why I was supporting Donald Trump. Oh, I remember you mentioned this last week, I think. Yeah. That's an insane quote. It's a weird thing to say. Um, So, you know, because I mean, I don't know, but just to set a normal baseline, (laughs) what you would have expected him to say was something like, I think Donald Trump has the right vision to do X and Y, which will be good because A and B. And he didn't say that. Um, he was on CNBC this morning. Uh, he was his his big idea was that we were going to have a cut in the corporate income tax rate that was going to help companies uh, move cash uh, back onshore and boost economic growth. This is like the most generic <laughs> Republican Party thing I can imagine a person saying, like. Literally, you could have copied and pasted this from like Calvin Coolidge or like anyone <laughs> who has ever been a Republican. Uh, lower corporate income tax rate. That's that's what they're all about. You would think that a guy from the hedge fund sector would not be in favor of the recent steps the Obama administration has taken to do more oversight of the hedge fund sector. He hasn't said that that's what he thinks exactly. Um, there's a big plan in Congress to like roll back. Dodd-Frank, Donald Trump gave a speech where he said he wants to roll back Dodd-Frank. Seems like a banker guy from Wall Street would agree with that. But he hasn't 
He hasn't said much about it. Um, this bringing cash back from overseas, mm-hmm. I should mention, it's. Um, I think the technical term for it is is bullshit. But um, <laughs> what what happens is is that um, you're supposed to pay taxes on your profits as a as a corporation in the United States, regardless of where they're earned. But you don't need to pay taxes on the foreign profits. Until you rather if if you have a subsidiary, right? So Apple has this uh, Irish subsidiary, Apple mm-hmm. Ireland. Um, and Apple Ireland, thanks to some fancy uh, legal work, is this incredibly profitable juggernaut because like every computer, every iPhone that Apple sells in Europe, uh, the like Apple Germany subsidiary makes no money off of it because they have to pay enormous patent licensing fees to Apple Ireland, which Apple Ireland is this like, profit-making juggernaut because they don't have a corporate income tax. So then this money sits, people say often on the business press that it's offshore, but it's actually controlled. It's in Nevada Mm -hmm. um, is where Apple's financial management unit is. And so they don't pay taxes on that money because it's owned by the Irish subsidiary. um, And so they can't but they can do whatever they want with it, right? Like if Apple had a desire to like build a factory, mm-hmm. um, they could get that money. It's not like walled off somewhere. And they wouldn't need to pay taxes on it, which is crucial because it's not a profit if you're right. recycling it into investment. The only reason they would need to pay taxes on it is if they wanted to do uh, a dividend mm-hmm. or a stock buyback. So what what Mnuchin is talking about, what Republicans have been talking about for years is we should let companies bring that money back tax-free or at a discount rate, and then pay it out to shareholders, um, which is great if you uh, are like a major Apple shareholder, mm-hmm. which maybe he is, uh, maybe Donald Trump is, we have no idea, uh, but it has nothing to do with the economy. Yeah. So that's his idea. So that feels like, like you're saying, like very generic Republican to me, which I could see like a lot of people who probably listen to this show, a lot of liberals are going to be like, I, I don't like that idea, but it's also like an idea... That makes sense if you have a conservative administration. Um, and I think it's just it's way more similar to what the Marco Rubio administration right. yeah, would be I'm doing right. so, than and, you might right. have thought. So like, as I look like, at for good or bad, right, as right? I look at the cabinet, it feels like less massive threat to democracy. And there are like like as you have written, like there are still some pretty significant threats. A lot of the conflict of interest stuff you've been covering. But then when I look at the cabinet, it feels like. A little off from like what Marco Rubio would have done, but like a cabinet that does not sound sound crazy or like a treasury secretary that like if Marco Rubio had picked him, like wouldn't sound like off the wall in a way like Trump often often was in the Republican primary where he had like I know particularly on healthcare in other spaces, he had quite different views often from um from but it is true that there are often different views in his statements. And then you actually look at his like policy papers and they kind of seemed like almost this game of telephone Republican proposals like someone had told someone that like something or other and then you end up with like the no state lines and like these very vague things that look sort of like healthcare proposals but but at least in a lot of the statements Trump was making during the campaign he felt quite out of place in the Republican party and now we're looking at a cabinet that seems quite at home in the Republican party I feel like Sessions is kind of the one like you were saying out like he's been rejected for for confirmation before due to some some racist things yeah. he said in the and past. I, mean, I, I wrote a piece that that I think will be interesting, but it, the, the, the title of the piece was like, it turns out we should have taken Trump, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you look not at like 
what was on Trump's Twitter feed or like what did he say in a live television interview or what did he say when he was feeling flustered in a debate? But like what did his white papers say? And they were pretty conventional Republican white papers except on immigration where his proposals were not like – But that was an issue on which the Republican Party has had significant divides for years and which Trump's white paper very strongly sided with the Jeff Sessions faction of the party, which has traditionally been a minority group in the party. It's not like a coincidence or mystery why that is. It's the white paper was written by guys who used to work for Jeff Sessions um, and now Jeff Sessions is going to be attorney general. So – You see an area in which he's shifting, certainly shifting from how George W. Bush approached immigration. And you have areas like taxes and regulation where he's seeming very similar to to how George W. Bush was going or just congressional Republicans writ large. Um, But in all cases, it's closer to the sort of vague vague statements on the website than to the kind of maniacal – Right. And, and there weren't a lot of them. So I felt like they got they were easier to ignore when you had like Hillary Clinton at these like massive white papers, super detailed policies. And then, you know, the ones at least I've looked at the Trump ones were usually like less than a page, like super brief. But they're generally in line with party policy. I don't think and like you've written about this before, Matt, that those policies got one weird thing is that by not going into detail, Trump almost made it. Trump seemed to give reporters a pass uh, on covering them, saying, oh, well, these aren't serious policies. You don't need to devote as many words to them. I, I think I fell into that trap at some points. You know, I did cover his his policies, but they were just harder to cover because there was so much less there. But now we are seeing those vague one-page outlines get fleshed out into actual policy. And you're right. Like, those are the things that are mattering a lot more than the things Trump said in a debate or like said in a, on his Twitter account. You know, and there's something I should have taken more seriously is a, a conversation that that I had with a, a sort of senior uh, Senate Senate Republican guy, and you know, we were I was talking about like you know Trump and like what's what's going on, and you know, he was clearly not thrilled with the idea of Donald Trump as the Republican Party nominee or trying to sell me on the idea that Donald Trump was going to be like an amazing president. But he said, you know, he doesn't seem that interested in the details of public policy. So we figure he's going to come in. He's going to get like some of our regular guys. We're going to do our bills and he's going to sign on to them and maybe he'll have a signature issue or two. And I think that take, right, the like, Orthodox conservative, the 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 people who were least covered in the whole campaign were like the Republican Party elected officials who were not going like never Trump, who also weren't like doing the like embarrassing Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, Trump surrogate thing, but who were just like they were supporting Trump. They weren't trying to convince people that like nominating Trump was an amazing idea, but they thought it was an okay idea and they thought he would be an okay president because they thought he would be a Republican president who would appoint Republican people to jobs and sign off on Republican policy ideas. And I mean, it's we're still like, what, negative six weeks mm-hmm. into the right. Trump administration. Right. But that seems to be roughly yeah. the correct. I mean, calculus. there's a space where things feel normal. And that feels like more the legislative process and pursuing these policies conservatives have. The the part that still feels very abnormal are the conflicts of interest. And like a right. lot of our international relations seem like they are going to become very unnormal. But then when I look at the legislative side, like covering the Obamacare fight, like that 
that feels like it's proceeding as it would with any Republican. Right. And it, it's, it's not to say there's nothing like odd about Trump yeah. or in some ways alarming, but like there were some takes during the election season, uh, some on Vox, maybe even <laughs> one or two by me, um, but like some really good ones by, by Lee Drutman um, about like a like a realignment of the ideological configuration of American politics with like Republicans maybe really like embodying a like white working class politics and Democrats really leaning into like cosmopolitanism and globalization. And like, I just don't see any yeah. any sign of that, that like Trump is odd in various ways, maybe just ways that are entertaining, maybe ways that are alarming. But like the core policy agenda he's pursuing is a very recognizable variant of like American conservative politics. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. But it's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. And with that, I mean, I think I, I think it would be good to take a look at, at one particular nominee's uh, Tom Price coming in as Health and Human Services Secretary who... Uh, does not have experience particularly with that agency, but has been chairing the relevant committee in the in the House. And so, in a you know, has a uh, you you've written about it, but like he has a detailed, specific legislative framework for American healthcare policy. Yeah, so I think Tom Price is the guy you pick if you're quite serious about dismantling Obamacare. Like that really seems to be where prices legislative interests lie. Um, he's done some work on Medicare and Medicaid, but that's mostly as budget chair. So he oversees the budget process. He makes these different proposals to change Medicare and Medicaid in ways that would really cut the program. But but those are seem to be kind of like a holdover from Paul Ryan, who had the position before him, where he has focused most of his legislative efforts are like thinking through, one, the logistics of how do you repeal Obamacare? So he is the lead author of the um, reconciliation repeal bill that passed about a year ago. So he he was the one who worked through how you can use this reconciliation process to pass repeal by simple majority instead of uh, the 60-member filibuster-proof majority? And two, what do you replace it with? So he is the author of, um, I think I'm right on this, the longest Obamacare re replacement bill in Congress. It's um, 242 pages long. It's pretty detailed. It does not replace all of Obamacare, but it offers a framework for what would 
what would come in it, what would replace it. It's, and, it's, it's worth, I think, dwelling on this yes. a, a little bit. Just like, because one thing that sometimes, you know, has been known to come up is like, people are like, oh, they haven't even read the bill. And, and the reason yeah. people haven't even read the bill is like, bills are super long and super <laughs> unreadable. And policy proposals normally take the form of like, maybe a detailed policy yes. proposal would be like a 26 yeah. page. Right. So PDF if you look at like Paul, like Paul Ryan's Obamacare replacement, which is quite similar to prices, that's like a 29 page kind of white paper. Right. And then but it leaves out so many important details like how big are the subsidies? You know, how much do you spend on Medicaid? Whereas when you move to legislative language, you actually have to put those details into the plan and then you get a much better sense of what exactly we're looking at. And so at. this means price has done much more work on this yes. than, say, anyone in the Obama administration had done on drafting Obamacare at this point, right? Probably, I mean, yeah. d- Democrats had a kind of a rough and ready framework mm-hmm. of what they were doing, but like they had to, I mean, not per se the HHS department, but like Max Baucus and those guys, they had to like start writing bills yeah. in the winter. Right. So Price yeah. has already, He's already written Yeah, the so they're starting, and it's kind of, I was thinking about this this morning, like it's probably this bill that Tom Price, in all honesty, just expected to kind of like hang out on a shelf for however long, and all of a sudden it's actually a quite useful document for Republicans to have. So they're like, and it's quite similar to where House Leader Ryan is. Ryan put out his Better Way Obamacare replacement, which is much less detailed. The price bill is called Empowering Patients. And it takes a lot from that bill. So they really have a framework for what comes next. And it's something that um, that will likely change a lot. So I'd say like a bill like this, it has a lot of things Republicans want but might not be able to pass. For example, it wants to cap employer tax exclusion, which is something like every economist I've ever talked to thinks is a great idea. And all the 150 million people with employer-sponsored insurance think is a terrible idea because it will increase their costs. So that's one that, like, it's in there. It's on the wish list. I don't think it's moving forward. And then on the other— in terms of empowering patients, like, what are, like, some big—how will will it empower me? How will it empower you? Um, Yeah. Well, it— Am I going to not need my my, uh, premiums to be subsidizing, uh, like, ladies' birth control and stuff anymore? (laughs) Yes, you will. If you are on the individual market, you won't have to pay for all those— Annoying pregnancies that women keep having, which oh, yeah. will be a great. So that's relief. very empowering. So um, it's, I mean, it's a very, it's a very different um, insurance market that the price bill envisions. It is one where um, you can charge sick people more again. So, and this is like a place I want to like dwell on just a little bit because I think the rhetoric around it is going to become very confusing. So you hear politicians like Trump, like Price, say we're going to outlaw pre-existing conditions that no insurance company can deny you coverage. And that is true in, in Price's bill. It does require insurance companies to accept everybody. It's like, sure, I'll cover you right. for a million exactly. dollars. So, so the catch is that if you don't maintain continuous coverage, if you at some point lose insurance for a few months, couldn't afford it, forgot to get around to it, whatever, um, insurance companies, they do have to offer to you, but they can charge you however much they'd like to charge you. And you have to maintain under the price bill, um, 18 months of continuous coverage before you can get back to the standard non-sick person rate. Um, the price bill is actually the most detailed on this. It says that if you have your break-in coverage, insurance companies can charge you 150% of the regular price, which could be quite a large increase. But I think that's something important to keep in mind as we're going to hear a lot about pre-existing conditions. There is 
a huge difference between telling insurance companies they have to accept everybody and telling insurance companies they have to charge everyone the same amount. The Republican bills, they do the first. They they do not do the second. Um, so I guess they, they would – and this is the replacement for the individual mandate, this continuous coverage provision. Instead of charging you a fee for not having coverage, they basically say, well, if you don't keep your coverage, you're, you're going to get locked out of the cheap rates going forward. Um, so it's it's a policy you need. It's probably a policy – if they could leave out of the bill, they would because it'll be unpopular. But just like you need the individual mandate, you need some kind of motivation to get people in the market. Um, I think there's some reasons to think this is an especially harsh penalty, one that could affect people for years after um, you know they make a decision to go uncovered for a little bit. But it it will it will empower you to think a lot about um about making sure you maintain your health coverage. And how about it, how about if I got like Medicaid recently? Oh, am I going really to how am I going to be empowered? Oh, it's uh, you're, it's it's so the price bill does nothing to replace Medicaid expansion. And this is okay. another place where I really do It's like if exp- I'm poor and I'm currently enjoying free free coverage, free health coverage, will, um, I'm going to be empowered. You'll be empowered to, to use not see the doctor. What? You're like you're in your mid Mid thirties, I think you get like a twelve hundred dollar tax credit to buy a fundable tax credit. So oh, you know nice. it wouldn't be usable, but um, a twelve hundred dollar tax credit to buy coverage, which is probably a lot less than the price of insurance. Um, and if I don't get coverage, you don't get coverage, and well, then, then I get you end, sick. So then you end um, up in this I'm continuous out. coverage issue, um, yeah. right? So there, there will be. They do it propose, doesn't feel that empowered. <laughs> they do propose these high risk pools for people who end up in that situation, but the details, even in the price plan, are like. Super vague. Um, the funding, who knows how much will be spent on it. Um, Tom Price is especially skimpy on the high risk pools. He proposes three billion dollars over three years. Um, Paul Ryan's at twenty five billion over ten years. Um, but basically, in Tom Price's plan, you have high risk pools for three years. I guess you presume everyone gets covered in those three years, and then you don't need them mm-hmm. anymore. But but the Medicaid part, I, I really, I think. The Republican Party has shifted a little bit on Medicaid since Price wrote his plan. We now have a vice president or an incoming vice president who expanded Medicaid. The Paul Ryan plan envisions keeping a version of um, Medicaid expansion, which is not as not nearly as generous as what exists now, but it is um, an option for states to keep it. So I think that's one place where the party has evolved since Price wrote his plan. And I think they are going to have to go back. And revisit. Um, I mean, 15 million people have joined Medicaid since Obamacare started. And I think that is a space where I would expect them to try and do like something, if not saving the entire thing. But um, we'll maybe. See. <laughs> right. I don't know. But the plan does not do that. The plan, okay, no, the but, plan okay, but let's do someone else. Say, say I'm like, I'm healthy, uh, no, no major illnesses and I've, and I've got like a good job and I'm above 400% of the poverty line. So I'm not getting any Obamacare yeah. subsidies. And you're a guy. So you don't want to have any kids. Yeah, I don't. You're not going to get pregnant. Sure. Presumably. Right. I don't, I don't want birth control. Yeah. Um, oh, this is great. Does, does he empower me oh, with the $1,200 yeah. tax credit? So, this is, so Obama won't yes. help me because Obama feels that since I'm not sick or poor, you don't, I shouldn't yeah. really get healthcare money from the government. Um, but Tom Price is going to empower yeah, so me. So Tom Price, um, you know, like I said, like you're in your mid 30s, um, regardless of what you earn. So th- the way Obamacare works is they are income related tax credits. Right. The less you earn, the more you get. The idea being you need more help to buy insurance when you earn less money. The And this is across the board in all Republican plans, except for one. Um, the tax credits become age 
age-adjusted. So right. depending on how old you are, that determines how much you get. So Bill Gates, for example, who has a net worth of $83 billion, um, he actually qualifies for the most generous tax credit under the price plan yeah, because he sense. is in the oldest um, oldest age bracket. So I forget. Ex- I think it was a three thousand dollar credit for That's the Bill good. Gates. So he's going to be impacted. So, but so Bill Gates, um, you know, is getting this tax credit, and he's probably super thrilled about that because you know, well, he probably has insurance at the Gates Foundation. But you have a lot of these, you know, rich Silicon Valley tech um, folks who who are not getting employer sponsored insurance. Maybe so. It's a good plan if you are rich, if you are if you are healthy, for example, if you want. And this has been a constant gripe from Republicans. About the Affordable Care Act, they argue that it mandates too many benefits. And I think this is a totally fair, um, you know, argument to have about the structure of health insurance, that it mandates coverage of maternity care, of a lot of free preventative services. Um, There's this list of 10 essential benefits that um, that are are required, which— So we're empowered to not have preventative (laughs) care. Um, But— I think there's a fair there's an argument I get on the conservative from conservatives that the idea of insurance is to like insure against the things you do not expect happening that, yes, that yes. to insure to finance it's not really about health it's about financial protection that if you get hit by a bus or whatever you don't want to go bankrupt from that and would disagree with the idea of offering these preventative like these expected benefits that everyone is yes. going so to So they use. they want to make health insurance more like um uh, I don't know what homeowners insurance, yes. mm-hmm. where right, like if something terrible happens, yes, you get financial assistance. But like if you just right. like need they, to replace yeah. your toaster, they, right. like that's just exactly on you. that's on you. And they want. I don't think they envision all insurance like that. They want that to be an option on the table sure. in a way. Obamacare really doesn't offer. They do allow catastrophic plans for people up to thirty, but after that, you can't buy into these catastrophic plans. Right. So, but, but so, I mean, yeah. the Obamacare vision, it's worth saying, because it's not like he was just showering everyone with, like, free Obama mm-hmm. phones, right? Like, the, the idea, I mean, I don't know whether you, people may, may agree with it or not, right? But the idea is that healthcare isn't just something that is useful to have when you are deathly ill, but that routine preventative medicine, like, is good and promotes population health. Mm-hmm. So we should be pushing it on people, and we will get, in the long run, like a healthier set right. of citizens if we encourage them to do that, right? And whereas the the price vision is uh, different. It's different, yes. And so he his vision would be very good if you're someone who's healthy, who doesn't want all those benefits, who would rather kind of take your chances on having – Less coverage. The thing Obamacare does is it requires you know everyone on the market to buy all these benefits, and that makes it it inflates the prices for young people, it deflates the prices for old people, and it makes it affordable for the right. older people buying on the market to get coverage. Because all of us, even if we're not going to, if it's quite unlikely we're going to use these benefits, we're all paying for them. Um, the idea of the price bill is it mandates fewer benefits. It allows people to kind of take more of a chance to say, I just want to have much skimpier coverage, and I'll take my chances on on going without those preventative visits, and I, I want to pay less for doing that. And that's good if you're young and healthy. It's probably quite bad if you're um, older and sicker. Um, one of the other big changes the price bill makes is right now Obamacare it has something called an age band where it says 
you can only charge old people three times as much as the youngest Obamacare enrollees. And that kind of artificially constrains the premiums for the people who are oldest who typically have health care costs five times the youngest people. The price bill gets rid of that age band. It says you can charge old people, young people, just like charge them whatever you want. Charge like the old people as much as you think is fair to charge an old person with these health care costs. So, again, that's another way, you know, if if you're older, the price plan very much disadvantages you. But if you're younger, I mean, the premiums will probably decline quite significantly because insurance companies can start pricing plans for how much they actually expect um, health insurance will cost you. So there's a a particular irony here that I do think it's worth (laughs) noting, is that if we think about the recent demographic structure of American politics – um, you will find that people under the age of, of 35 or so um, were super enthusiastic about Barack Obama, um, a little bit less enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton, um, but really hated Donald Trump. Whereas if you think about like a really stereotypical, like like who won this thing for Trump, like who swung away from the Democrats, older working class people, um, often in communities. We don't know so much about their individual level health, but we know that the community level health in uh, areas that swung hard for Trump has been has been not so hot. Um, A sort of classic thing people will talk about, you know, which which I think is true, is that, you know, in the long run, like the economy rebalances. But if you're like a 54 year old factory worker who lost his job, you know, due to Chinese Mm -hmm. uh, import competition, you're not really going to like retrain as an app developer. You're now probably stuck in a Mm -hmm. lower paid uh, service sector type job. And you're really screwed under this yeah plan. it's it's a weird way where i see political like policy views kind of at odds with demographics where I, I think republicans generally believe that we would be better off if we had a health insurance system that mandated fewer benefits that had cheaper premiums that kind of really saw health insurance more like homeowners insurance and politically and they feel quite strong about those policy views right. It doesn't help the people who support them. And it's the exact same on the Democratic side, where Democrats really believe that health insurance should be a safety net, that it should help people get healthier and that we really care about providing those preventative benefits. And again, this like helps the exact people. And when, and when you, you, go, not vote and when you go further left, that's actually even more extreme, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, Obamacare was, relatively speaking, better for older and sicker people, worse mm-hmm. for younger and healthier people. But like Bernie Care. Even better for older and sicker even, people. Even more. Like young and yeah. healthy people would be getting health free health benefits they wouldn't use, and old and sick people would be getting a lot of... Although I'd say that's a little different because it would presumably be bad for the rich, I assume, yes, yeah, the right. tax structure of it. Well, but it... Right, yes. I mean, it, w- it would be very bad for the... Right. But I mean, just in terms of in terms of the philosophy of, like, what is the health insurance sure. problem, right? Okay. The further right you go, yes. the more you're not trying to, like level health and age disparities Mm -hmm. and just enact some kind of like pure insurance function and help out younger and and Mm -hmm. healthier people so they're not shouldering the cost of other people's (laughs) health care. And as you move left, you get more and more into like total pooling of risk, right? And like through the tax code, people who are not going to see the doctor very much are paying for everyone else's doctor visits, right? Um, and, And the structure of American politics like in terms totally of who votes for who is the exact opposite, opposite of that. Yeah. yeah. Fine.
Time for a white paper? Yeah, white paper. White paper. All right. I think okay. we're back to NBER finally. Yeah, NBER. I got it. This is like a, I don't want to say old, it's an it's old classic. paper, but it's, it's from 2015. Um, it, this is an p- old paper from, from 2015 by Christopher Room, or maybe Rum, but I think Room. And it's called Health Effects of Economic Crises. It's something I've been thinking about a lot since the election because uh, people have been interested in, in knowing what went on and, and the economy and health and so Room is building on a larger literature in which he has been a participant, which shows that recessions are good for health outcomes. Um, so walk us through that. Like, what's the thinking? Right. So at happens? first it seems you – there was right. like – like the old view was that like recessions are bad for health <laughs> outcomes because it's bad to be poor, um, which makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, but it turns out that when people have jobs, one big thing they do is they drive to work. Uh, which is a good way to die. Um, they also have more money in their pockets, and something people like to do when they have more money in their pockets is smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol, uh, which is bad for you. Um, then the other thing they tend to do is get like busy and stressed out, uh, which is not that good for you. Uh, when people become unemployed, they tend to cut back on drinking and smoking. They cut back on driving. Um, they increase – the biggest thing they increase is television watching, mm-hmm. which is why we tend to have like negative effect toward the idea of unemployment. Um, but people do sleep more. Mm-hmm. Um, they do more housework and childcare, which are both more physical activities. They exercise more. They socialize more. So all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the TV is like the biggest chunk and it's like neither here nor there. But many of our jobs are similar to watching TV. Right. We just a, stare at a screen you, you all day. You sit in a chair and you stare at a screen. <laughs> um, dr- driving, people always forget, but it's like incredibly deadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, people people talk more to their friends and family. They exercise a little bit more. They sleep better. They drink less. Mm-hmm. They smoke less. It is true that in recessions, more people kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a real negative impact there, but it is outweighed uh, by uh, the, the positive benefits. Um, this is a pretty robust finding across U.S. recessions, studies of Germany, studies of Spain. Um, uh, unemployment, not just unemployment, but like general um, impoverishment, <laughs> not poverty. I mean, I should right. say I, you don't want to over- overstate it, but like when income, I think unemployment, right? Like it's mostly unemployment, but to some extent, it's like just like you know okay. hours cut back, having less money in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Like it's all good. And so what Room wanted to check was like, well, okay, is it different when we have like a giant cataclysmic recession like like we had recently? And he goes back through, uh, you know, the depths of the recession and he finds, no, uh, big recession is like a small recession, but even more so, like even more suicides, but even more uh, benefits on, on the other side. And the benefits, do they outweigh the increase in, like, do they go up at the same same rate? Yeah, like- it's it's it just as best we could tell, like it just scales like it's it's just the same as a small recession, but bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so like nothing interesting. Got it. Um, so I was interested in this paper because I, I think one interesting thing that started happening in 2015 and, and 2016 is that as as most indicators of the economy indicated that the economy was getting a lot better uh, than it had been is that two groups of people, right? Like one, like the hardest core Trump Knicks, like the kind of people who voted for Trump in the primary. And then also the hardest core, like Bernie Sanders people, the people wanted like radical political change, had a tendency to insist that, no, actually the economy like was still doing terribly. 
And then Trump won the election. Um, he got less votes than Hillary Clinton, but he won the election anyway. So that like led to an increase in the sort of like social status of the view that like actually the economy was in more terrible shape. Mm -hmm. And so one thing people would point to for that was a, a number of very bleak sort of health indicators um, that are happening, particularly in the sort of most Trump-friendly um, type demographics. And while this paper doesn't speak directly to that, it's a reminder of the fact that in a developed country like the United States, health and income growth are just not that closely correlated. Um, now, if you have a community which is, has a skyrocketing death rate, there is clearly something going badly wrong there. But there's no particular reason to believe that the thing that is going wrong is economic deprivation mm -hmm. per se. Um, communities that are being devastated by opiate addiction, uh, for example, right. may really just be devastated by opiate addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, like how, I don't know, like Hurricane Sandy wiped out some very affluent towns, um, right? Like it, it was like the 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 thing was really the thing, you know, and, and in some ways, the economic recovery may have exacerbated some kinds of population health problems that exist mm -hmm. in, in at least certain certain areas and, and certain communities. Yeah. I think one thing that's one of the things I wonder about kind of in both this paper, this whole body of research is um it definitely seems to be quite true that there is a positive health effect to recessions for all the reasons you mentioned. At the same time, I don't know it actually feels that way to people. And I think this like ties to like the suicide rates that I think you can have both improvements in mortality and mental health declines yes. where, you know, you're, you're not going to you aren't driving. So that's a positive. And maybe you're spending more time socializing with friends, but you're feeling like very separate from your community. You're at home. You're feeling bad about yourself. You know, you were you're applying for jobs, you're getting rejected, like you're quite isolated and like that social fabric you have around you that's created by employment kind of goes away and you're spending a lot of time on like menial household tax or, you know, things you don't don't enjoy. Um, so so one thing I wonder about is you don't feel, you don't see around you like, oh, well, like people aren't driving and like it seems like a lot more people are living and like I feel good about this downturn. Like I imagine you still feel kind of shitty about the downturn, even as this mortality, um, even as like you're having these mortality effects that are quite population level and like quite hard to actually see. Yeah, well, and I do think obviously the causal attribution of suicides versus car accidents is going to be, you know, obviously different, right? If you hear that your cousin lost mm -hmm. his job and then five months later <laughs> right. he hadn't found a new one and he killed himself, you're not going to say like, well, everybody who loses their job kills themselves, but you're obviously going to draw the line between those two events. Right. Whereas if your cousin John just um, gets in a car crash, gets a job right. and then five months later dies in a car crash, you're not going to think, oh, man, he if he gotten hadn't gotten a job, he'd still be alive today, even though it's probably true, right? But that's not how we think about things um, because employment for people of the appropriate age is just like considered the norm mm -hmm. and commuting to your job in a car is also considered the norm. So the fact that a certain number of people die in any given week driving their cars around is not like – it's not like mentally, socially or politically processed as like deaths because people had jobs, mm -hmm. even though like in a literal sense, that's what's that's what's right. going on. Um, so, you know, and like the exercise and, and stuff like that is a little bit um, 
uh, vaguer. It's like it's like small scale stuff. Whereas like people are sad, right. people become depressed. Mm-hmm. Some of those depressed people uh, kill themselves. Some of the depressed people become drug addicts. That like really weighs on you as like economic problems are leading to bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's just easy. I feel like it's easier to feel the negatives of even if we have this like academic body of research. Right. If you look on the more micro level, that it's a lot easier to identify the the negatives of of the down of any kind of downturn and um, kind of see those much more clearly than um, than like some someone who didn't die right. driving to work. But I, I do think it's important to keep in mind, not so much because you know. The next time there's a recession, I don't think it would make sense to go around being an asshole. It's like, it's like well, at well, least actually. at least are going to live longer. Um, but that, you know, the United States is a fairly wealthy country overall. Um, I think you know Luxembourg and Qatar uh, end up ahead of us, but we're not a country without problems. Um, and one problem we particularly have is a much lower life expectancy than a number of other advanced developed countries. Um, and it's it's just it's worth recalling. I mean, I think particularly for for people on the left, right? For people who were, for people who really didn't like it when Hillary Clinton said um, that America is already great. Um, I think those people, people whose instinct is to was to react negatively to that message, I think should should hold fast to their negative reaction because they know there are these serious problems in the United States, but should recognize that many of those problems are not like economic per se. Uh, mm-hmm. There's very little reason to believe that increasing the employment rate in mm-hmm. the United States would fix the fact that we have a much lower life expectancy than than most other countries. Um, there's not even that much reason to believe that the, you know, like the problems of Obamacare premiums and stuff, well, very real sort of, th- those are money problems much more than like health outcome problems, right? That like Americans appear to be compared to other people in, in developed countries, uh, less physically active, eat less healthily, and that those kinds of things um, – to you know, they need to be like addressed. Was more, it true we also have more car accidents? Or that's yeah, we we okay. we. Have, I mean, we drive more. We drive more, more, we drive more. more per okay. person, and our roads are not the safest on a per mile basis. So, like one thing, if America is going to be the driviest country in the world and also one of the richest countries in the world, maybe we ought to really invest in making our driving unusually safe, uh, which we have not done. It's about average in its dangerousness. Wait, what and makes we, other countries' roads safe? Like what changes would we make? Uh, speed limits. Okay. It's like phys- literal physical that's road kind design. Of, yeah, um, it's to some extent the design of the cars, right? So our car- we're in a, okay. an arms race toward heavier and heavier right. cars, which on the toll makes them more lethal. Uh, right. There's things you could do. Right. Um, but it, all of which is just to say that like opiate addiction, it seems mm-hmm. bad. Car crashes, seems really bad. Uh, obesity, diabetes, like there's a lot of bad things going on out there. And it's also true that we recently had a big recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of tempting to like draw a straight line between those things. But it it really seems like that is not mm-hmm. correct. So how do you think then about, so we know that these areas that are quite sick and in poor health are, are bigger Trump supporters. Like how does this paper, does it change how you think about those areas? Or I mean, how do you think about those places in the country? I think it just reinforces that whatever like the most serious social issue. Now, again, 
there are some people in the United States who are living below the poverty line in quite states at times of extreme material deprivation, mm-hmm. and they could probably best be helped with like with more money. Um, but I think that if we're looking at communities that are specifically experiencing public health crises, mm-hmm. I, I'm not like an expert in this. Like I know more about economics, but like what the economics are telling us is that economics is not what the problem is exactly. That employment is not Yeah, that, that, is. that lack of employment opportunities is not the issue per se. Also, even just money. There was a, there was another recent paper that maybe we should talk about someday, but it but it it tried to look at like lower income people and when they get more money, do they eat healthier mm-hmm. food? Because that's like one we know that like richer people tend to eat healthier food mm-hmm. than poorer people. But a different question is is like if you give the poorer people like twenty more dollars, do they mm-hmm. go out and buy something healthy with it? And no, like basically they go out and buy uh, soda. Okay. Um, which is which is bad and it's similar to when people lose their jobs they cut back on booze mm-hmm. right and you know frankly i mean i i i enjoy uh, soda and, <laughs> and booze and and other unhealthy things um but you know it's like that right it's like people who have unhealthy consumption habits mm-hmm. and that leads to poor health outcomes if we want to fix that or help them with that or i don't know how you want to put it but like you need to do something Force, kind of forceful and direct. Well, soda taxes of, are now all the rage. So yeah, I mean, so that m- might be maybe that will work. Policy. I mean, I mean, there's more things you might need. Maybe maybe we need to like drive trucks full of broccoli up to people's houses. Um, I feel like I have an unusually unhealthy lifestyle for an urban yuppie. Um, so honestly, I have no idea what the rest of you are doing right. Um, and this is one respect in which in which Donald Trump is a true working class. Uh, avatar is that, you know, but, you know, I mean, he's super rich. He lives in a gold condo. Um, But he always made a big deal in the campaign, at least. But I think also in reality of like, you know, his love of like McDonald's French fries Mm -hmm. and and slurping sodas and taco bowl. Yeah, his taco bowl. Um, And, you know, I think there is a good indication that for like most people who are eating unhealthy food, um, if they had more money, what they would do is buy more unhealthy right. food with it because they buy that because they like it. Cause and it's, because it's delicious. Right, because it's great. But right, I mean, that's that's what I mean. Um, I mean, Trump is, a, is an alcohol abstainer, mm-hmm. though, which is which is very healthy and not not that legitimately working class. But the, the issue that like we need to confront on some level is that like America is already, I don't know if we want to say that America is already great, but America is already quite rich. Mm-hmm. So, like, what problems we have are probably not going to be solved by just increasing the aggregate amount of money that people have. All right. I think that's yeah. our episode. That said, if you do happen to have some money that you want to spend on, like, our sponsors' products, uh, that'd be amazing. Um, or you could just help us out by, by recommending uh, the weeds to your friends. Tell them um, to subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes. Just, just talk to them about it in person. Email them. Tweet. Facebook us. Snapchat. Do all the stuff. Do all the Snapchats. Um, So thanks to our our producer, uh, Efim Shapiro. Thanks to Panoply. Uh, Thanks to you, the listeners. And we will be back next week, uh, except not with Ezra or Sarah. So I'll have to come up with something. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) It's a mystery. All right. No, seriously. Thank you. See you next week.